You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Okay, we're live. Once again, the red record button is active. Um, Bracken, you've been you've been busy as a gosh darn beaver over there. What have you been doing? Well, I've been I've been making a mess. I've been fixing stuff, and and then I've been tinkering in the lab. A lot of stuff. First of all, my internet's been terrible, and it's because the one downside of moving my office from the basement up to the second floor is I had to go off Wi-Fi. So yesterday, my dad and I spent hours running a 100-foot Ethernet cord from the basement up the behind the chimney through the laundry chute up to the attic, drilling down through the floor and ceiling, and then running it to the computer. But now my internet's 400 times faster. That sounds like a lot of work. It shouldn't have been, but this is such an old house. There's no room places. Like There's just not any... There's not this like open space between the walls and the floors. And it was, it was a nightmare. We to lost con- the cable behind the wall so many times. Oh, to confirm, this is all to bring the good people listening to the running public better product. Yes. Because yesterday we had an issue, Kirk. Yeah. So, you know, this is training Tuesday. And as I look at my watch, it is nine o'clock AM on Tuesday morning. And we're recording this, which is very poor practice. Some would call that procrastination. But others would call that internet issues when we tried to record this episode yesterday. We recorded the entire episode and it booted me off at least three or four times. And it was it was a mess. And so we just decided to fix the internet and start over. But last night, Lisa mm-hmm. and I were downstairs watching Baywatch, like a couple grown adults should do. And we heard footsteps upstairs and they sounded confused. And Lisa ran up and she couldn't find Ayla. Oh boy. <laughs> she she found her in this office. Now, what you can't see is that this recording studio is like eight by five. It's Small. a essentially a walk-in closet. <laughs> okay. Ayla was in here trying to go to the bathroom on my computer chair. <laughs> she was doing a little sleepwalking. Couldn't she? figure it out. So she sat on the exercise ball, which is also what I use as a computer chair from time to time, and she let loose. She was asleep. She peed. <laughs> all over the office and because it was on top of the exercise ball it cascaded down in a 360 degree pattern everywhere and we have a nice new jute rug in here oh no so i came in this morning my computer was turned off i never turn it off because we run a plex server for media uh my webcam was all cattywampus i had stuff all over. like she had just rifled through everything trying to figure out where the bathroom was <laughs> so what i'm really trying to figure out when bracken and i hopped on this call i, I looked at Bracken and i was like bracken you look a little blurry to me today so my question is is what what sort of uh fluid is on the webcam face what got there i mean best case scenario it's urine <laughs> that's best case scenario <laughs> what a mess yeah so but that, I did see I did see you clean it off with your finger and it's looking much better. So I just want like I just the thumb and wiping. That's a good idea. Okay. What a night. I didn't know this. Yeah. But now you tack that on top of all this lab work I've been doing, trying to trying to perfect the supplement game. Hold on. I'm not wait, we'll get to that in a second. I'm not done with this sleepwalking. No, I'm not done with this sleepwalking situation. Is this common for her? Yeah. She, well, she has to go to the bathroom at night. She, or, Anytime she wakes up at night, she's in one of two moods. She either wakes up with like the biggest, goofiest smile with super clear eyes and she just loves everyone. And it's really funny. Or you cannot wake her up and she's just a mess, like sitting up shaking in bed or walking all over the place. Like some part of her knows she needs to get up and get to the bathroom, but it just can't break through her sleep. And so when we hear footsteps, we take off running. Oh, man, you're just going to like line the floor of your office with like plastic wrap or something just to be safe. And really, this is this is me. There's 
my parents tell the story all the time where if they hit heard my foot because we had wood floors at home too if they heard the footsteps start echoing they had to come running because the first door i got to i assumed was the bathroom and i just opened up and i'd let loose man i don't want to share hotel room with you more than i have to i mean i'm I'm an adult now (laughs) kind of i rarely have that happen anymore the only thing that makes you an adult is that you have kids. Otherwise, any other avenue of your life, I don't know if it comes through as, as purposefully. Come on. Would an adult make their own supplement? Yeah, let's get to that. All right. So you've been doing something pretty impressive uh, this last week. I think you should take us back and tell us what, you, what you've what you been doing. Well, we had Matt Mossman on, the, the Endure Elite guru. And I asked him a question. I said, I looked at the back of your performally can and I looked at all the ingredients and the percentages and everything and I sourced it all out and priced it out and thought could a guy an industrious ruggedly handsome man get out there and make his own supplement he said yeah you you could but you don't know where it comes from you can't guarantee the purity of your substances it's going to taste terrible and it's hard to get the formula right plus it's hard to really combine things correctly if you don't have the machinery for it now why now, why would a guy that is sponsored by Enduralite need to need to make his own Performalite product, Rackin? I don't understand. You just turning the knife in my gut? I am twisting it. There was a snafu last year with FitLink Media and Enduralite. Mm-hmm. And as a result, some athletes were let go. I was wow. one of them. And, for- and I thought, yeah. you know, I thought being the good ambassador of the brand, despite not representing them, I'd get picked back up. But I haven't. And in these COVID uncertain times, I'm tightening my belt, Kirk. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm very impressed. I am very impressed. And so I decided, even though Matt said I shouldn't and I agree with it, I'm making my own. So I, I ordered everything through uh, Amazon and I got bulk quantity, bulk meat, like human, normal human bulk quantities, not like mm-hmm. indus- industrial bulk quantities. And I, I started combining. And I, but, but there's like 30 ingredients on Performally. I, I took very few. I cut out anything that I didn't understand how it would interact, anything that was cost prohibitive or anything that I felt like wasn't yet for sure it was a benefit. I only took the things that I know there is science behind that says definitely this is great bang for your buck. The rest is we think it could be and it does help certain things, but I kept it simple to start with. That's amazing. So you took uh, control of this situation in these hard times and decided to macramade yourself a pre-workout supplement darn right all right tell me how have you have you experimented with it first let's what is in this supplement what what ingredients did you prioritize number one i got caffeine duh however it's not necessarily number one because i don't use caffeine every day i use it for big workouts and races well, so i got works when you use it then that's in capsule form so i can pull it apart 200 milligram and i can dump in as much as i want and i'm taking the excess dumping it in a little container and I'm saving it up for a rainy day. All right. Caffeine. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there. That's uh, you know, a little voodoo medicine, we'll call it in the yep. original, in the original blend, but there's no way, there's no way that you did not put the, uh, the tingly sauce beta alanine in there. Yeah. I, I got to have my tingles. So beta alanine was my most important one because that just signals it's go time. So that is absolutely in there. And then third is beetroot powder. Just those three? Also creatine. Oh, because ho, 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 ho. Yeah, because I'm a believer in creatine. And I'm trying to yeah. look good for Lisa. How much that's uh, endearing after all those years of marriage? How many how many grams of creatine you got in a serving? Uh, I just do two and a half to three each day. I'm not okay. doing a loading phase. I'm just consistently going. Uh, science, but the, the science shows that loading phase and not loading phase get you to the same point. It just takes longer to get there. And right. I don't have anything on the horizon. <laughs> None of us do. So you took it right yesterday. We so back I've been taking it for a week. Oh, you have. Well, I thought you had a problem yesterday when you took it. I've been diuretic since I've started. <laughs> diuretic is you're missing. There's a difference between diuretic and diarrhea, Bracken. I don't know if you're familiar. I've been explosively diuretic. <laughs> What's wrong with your formula, man? Uh, I think it's the beta alanine. I think there's too much in there. I read up on it after. <laughs> Well, as I was stuck there on the porcelain throne, I started researching more. And mm. apparently, if you have more than your body wants, it just immediately flushes until it gets back to its homeostasis <laughs> level. It's normal if your face is tingling after you take it. But if your butthole starts to tingle back and you're probably taking too much. 
We've now got to that point in this podcast. I'm comfortable with it if you are. <laughs> so yesterday I got up at six to do my workout and I did my workout at 1 p.m. Mm, whoa. Wait, wait, like seven hours later? Yeah, because I couldn't stop pooping. Oh, man. I was nervous to even like open up my stride. <laughs> <laughs> That's the risk you run when you play scientist. Matt, if you're listening, <laughs> please take me back. <laughs> if you're not, I'm going to keep tinkering. Okay. Uh, it's clearly detrimental to your health. Um, one last question that I have for you with this is, so you said you purchase in bulk. So you purchase those three, caffeine, beta alanine, and beetroot powder in bulk. And creatine. And creatine, yes. How many servings would this get you, and how much did you spend on it? All right, I spent $112. I got 328 servings of everything except caffeine, which was 200 servings. But because that's 200 milligrams, I'm going to be able to parcel that out over a full year. So I have almost a year's worth. I'll come up about 40 days shy of a year uh, for $112. If you were taking it almost daily. Or which else. I will, because beta alanine and beetroot is nece necessary to have your loading phase and to keep it consistently going. Wow. Okay. So if you put the per serving cost, that is a granted you're not don't have all the ingredients of the true perform elite blend. However, that's a really that's like I don't know. What does it come out to? 30, 40, 50 cents a I, I, I don't know. know. 33 cents a day or something. Yeah. Wow. Like in that case, I mean it's the cheapest diarrhea you can possibly have. <laughs> but the offset in toilet paper costs might make it a net, you know, zero. <laughs> it's gonna be a lot. <laughs> All right, shall we move on? Oh, last thing. Yeah. Meal. Orange flavored meal squirt because it tastes awful. It's so sour and bitter. Not sour, it's so bitter. So I use meal to balance it out and then it's palatable. Really? Does it still, can you still taste like it's like, oh, that's like not going to sit well because you know when there's like strong flavors in your palate that it can yep. affect your GI? Is it one of those things where maybe it's just like, God, it's just too strong? Real Performally, I like the flavor actually. I yeah, like it in there and I taste that and think, yeah, I'm excited to work out. This, I have to take at least 20 minutes earlier than I would take Performally because it's not super settled in my gut. So mm -hmm. I'm not, it's not a net positive yet. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun along the way. And and the the journey is really the reward, Bracken, as they say. Well, <laughs> if so, this reward is. What, what, what's the phrase? Uh, stupid games, win stupid prizes. You may be somewhere in there. I'm winning a stupid prize right now. <laughs> I don't even know what that would be. Um, okay, let's talk uh, topic of the day today. Today... Um, Bracken and I wanted to dive into uh, sort of lessons learned or mistakes made either in training, racing, nutrition, the mistakes we've made, and then the lessons we've learned from them. And this is sort of a broad stroke episode in the sense that we're just going to cover a few different topics. We have like six maybe that we're going to dive through uh, and go one by one through them, like what we've, the mistakes we've made, maybe tell a story or two along the way. And uh, maybe you can learn from our mistakes because did the math. You know, I'm 37. I started endurance training uh, seventh grade, let's call it. I was like 12 or 13. Let's say 24 years of endurance training. There's been uh, a few wrongs mixed in with the rights, to say the least, on my end. Mm -hmm. And so, and you're, how deep are you? Probably 20, 21 years. 21 years. So there yep. you have it. So it's my not. career can legally drink. <laughs> Impressive and sad. And like all new time drinkers, I've made my mistakes along the way. Ooh, good brief analogy. Thank you. And we can't take all the credit for this. Madison Nick inspired us to take to take this topic on. The mistakes we've made, give it to the people. And Madison Nick, he's got his own podcast, doesn't he? Yeah, Madison Nick. What's up, dude? He's one of my best friends, Nick Whalen. Um, he is a fantasy football expert, and he is a guest on a number of uh, fantasy football podcasts, and then I think hosts some as well. So he, he knows what the people want. He said the people want to hear about our blunders. Yep. Can't argue with it. Let's blunder on. Not only do we get unforeseen diarrhea because of self-made pre-workouts, we do a lot of other things wrong. So I have six. I've identified the six things that I've done that have had the biggest ramifications throughout my career. Yeah. Well, and I kind of, after you listed them off, I kind of agree. So I'm just going to, I'm going to spawn off of your ideas with uh, my own mistakes, so to speak. Uh, you're smirking. Oh, <laughs> we recorded this yesterday, and I know a few of your stories. I can't wait to hear them again. <laughs> All right. Why don't you lead us into the first one then? All right. First thing is inconsistency. I know that's that's kind of like 
low hanging fruit, but taking big extended breaks followed by trying to overdo it to catch back up. This started in high school for me, not running in the summer and then trying to quick cram in three months worth of training in the last two weeks before cross country started, not running over the winter and then getting to track and having to hammer every single workout for three weeks to try to be race ready. Mm -hmm. Doesn't ever work. And it, it actually puts you in a worse place. Well, it does. And it also, it, it increases your, your risk of injury significantly. Yeah. And then you're, you're overloading so much fatigue on the body that it's not prepared to handle that it's actually going to detriment your performance for weeks to come until you're adapted. And it actually, a lot of times in that philosophy, like, oh, I have a Spartan race in a month, time to start training hard. You just end up tired on the start line and not adapted or possibly potentially injured. So like that is like a vicious cycle to get into. It is. You you have to undo all that work you quick crammed in in order to recover and absorb any of it. And the closer you get, the more pieces you have to cram in. You have to cram in base phase, threshold running, speed work, skill work, all into one quick little chunk, and you absorb so little of any of it. We had Ian Hosick on talking about how he likes to do his stuff in separation, speed over here, strength over here. You don't even have that option once you get down to the wire and cramming it in really helps nothing except maybe get you tough. Yeah, I suppose. But you also can argue and in that that case, you also one lead yourself to potentially peak too early and two, you also lead yourself to not hit even close to your actual peak. I used this analogy yesterday when we when we recorded for the first time and I'll use it again, but like Training consistently, no matter where your season is at, in some capacity, is always the best route. It's the equivalent of going to work every day, depositing a check at the end of the week, and that money continually is put in the bank. At the end of the year, you're going to have more to take out than if you took two months off of work uh, twice a year because you just didn't feel like it and there wasn't the pressure of time or money, and that bank account's going to be drained. You're going to have less to withdraw, and you're going to build a less uh, less foundational base to like your financial security. Same thing goes with training. Like you keep putting those small amounts in the bank on a regular basis. And at the end of the year, the end of the season, that's going to add up to more fitness than if you just ebb and flow with your training and you need like the uh, procrastination method of hard work. Like it just does not work that way. It's a net negative when you train that way. It is. And then when you try to cram it all back in, it just doesn't take you, you talked about the the painting the wall analogy, and I don't I don't want to get pigeonholed into the analogy role. I want you going back to back analogies here. Talk about painting the wall in terms of cramming all your work into one week. Well, it's so true, man. It's like <clears throat> let's say you're going to paint a building, and that building requires three coats of paint. But fuck it, you're in a time crunch. I'm going to lather three coats worth of paint on in day one. What's going to happen to that paint, bro? Yeah, it never dries, it never sets, and then it just kind of clumps and smears and looks streaky and awful. And runs, and it's disgusting, and it's not productive. It ends up being sort of a shatty product. That's what your fitness is going to be if you just try to cram it all in at one time before like an event happens. Now, you put a layer of paint on, you let it dry. Put another layer on, let it dry. And all that stuff has a chance to sink in, dry, be purposeful, and then feed the next layer of paint, which brings you better to a finished product. Yeah. So that's where like periodized training comes in. And I don't know what it is with you yahoos out there who need to have a race within a month or two to even get your ass off the couch. But if you really love this sport, you got to change that. That's what I think. Absolutely. You got to yeah. lay your paint down in coats. Don't yeah. just dump the whole gallon on the wall at once because it doesn't all stick. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I think back to high school when I got my first couple of stress fractures. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's it's just my nature. But um, we would take off, you know, after cross country in the fall, and then we'd have a period off in the winter. And then suddenly it'd be like January or February 1st and be like, oh, shoot, like the first track meets mid-March. Like I better start running. And then suddenly I'm out trying to do 10-mile runs on the pavement in the winter after taking a month or two off. And I end up with stress fractures two years in a row when I realized that it was about slow build and I finally got that figured out later in my high school career, uh, my fitness was better. I staved off injury and it was a much like more serene process. And ultimately all you really care about is performing better. And that happened too. So I learned that mistake on the injury front at a young age. Uh, uh, Tell me about some of these winter runs you had, you were (laughs) known to 
to try to cram even extra stimulus into your easy runs with the team. Yeah, well, there might have been uh, there might have been a little uh, another X factor into this first stress fracture of mine. So, I uh, talk about stupid mistakes, guys. So, like, we sit here and talk to you like we're some experts, and I'll tell you what: the only experts we are is self-proclaimed experts. I don't know if anybody else could, you know. I, we're just we've done a lot of stupid things, haven't we? Yes, we have, and you uh, have done. A really funny, stupid thing. Yeah. So here's my young brain. And so I just want you guys to feel better about all the dumb shit you've done too, is I was the fastest guy on my team and I had nobody that could run with me back in high school. And so, but I like to run with people. I wanted to run with my buddies. You know, these are my friends on the team, but every run I'd have to go run by my damn self because I was faster. And that's not like a humble break. That's just is what it was. We didn't have a very good team, to be honest. So at the time. So anyways, I thought it would be a great idea to strap my mom's five pound ankle weights around my ankles <laughs> so I could run with the team. So I had 10 pounds of shitty, disgusting, like loose sand type Velcro ankle weights on both my ankles. And I would go run with the other guys thinking that, oh, well, 10 extra pounds of weight on my legs is definitely going to slow me down, make me work harder. Uh, and it, it did. It, it did. And then it slowed me down for about six to eight weeks when I had to take off because of a stress fracture. Uh, yeah. That's the kind of thing that when you don't have oversight on the decisions you make, that makes logical sense. It made perfect sense in my mind. Yeah. And then you think about how hard my feet were slapping the ground. And then I'm wearing the old Adidas tearaway pants. And if you remember those pants, they're baggy as hell. And they have the snap buttons along the side. Well, I was a small kid, but like, I think I just bought a pair of mediums and that was that. Well, they went under my shoes when I ran. So not only did I have five pound ankle weights on each ankle, but I had these Adidas pants with the snaps on them landing underneath the heel of my shoe when I'm running because they were too big for me. Uh, so it was like a disaster. That that That's a whole other story, but that would be uh, one example of the, you know. Kirk, I'm ashamed to say you're not the only one with a running weighted injury. No? What'd you no. do? Oh, and I wasn't young either. Uh, my first year in the sport leading up to the Killington World Championships, I did a lot of stuff to make me tougher and to get ready for a three-hour grind in the mountains. And one of them was I ran my first Tough mutter, but I knew it wasn't competitive. Uh, so I took a page out of Hobie Call's book and I raced it with a 12-pound weight vest on. Okay. Just just because why? Well, because it would be... Hobie Call is the best. Hobie Call was proclaiming the benefits of a weight vest. And I thought, yeah, I want to go out there. And I knew that I would get an hour or two into this race and my body would be more tired than it had ever been in a race. And so I wanted to get used to fatigued competing. And I thought a weight vest is going to take me there really quickly. I thought, you know, if you put some ankle weights around your ankles, that would have been the ultimate, you know, <laughs> transformer going through the course. So... I did it incorrectly, of course. I didn't build into a weight vest. I just put it on at the end of my warm-up, and everyone looked at me at the start line like I was an idiot or a cyborg. <laughs> um, oh. I, I was one, not the other, <laughs> just an <laughs> idiot, and we took off. And right away, it was harder to run, but I was feeling good, and it wore me down. And by the end of the race, when I finished walking back to the car in the parking lot, my lower back was killing me. By the time I got home after driving two hours in the car, I had shooting like electrical feeling from my lower back, down my hip, down my hamstring, all the way down to the outside of my knee. And I had SI issues for the next, I don't know, a year or so because a couple of weeks later, I went out and raced Killington and smashed down the descents without having trained real descents. And for the rest of the year, my lower back was a mess. Oh, and it all stemmed from that day, huh? Yeah. And honestly, I was lucky to have lower back issues because I should have drowned in that race. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't there, wasn't there water obstacles in that thing? Yeah. So every Tough Mudder has that that plunge you take off a cliff. It's at least 10 or 12 feet off the water. And the pit has to be deep enough to absorb people going 10 to 12 feet down fast. And I hit the water and I was, I was working hard that day. And so I was gasping, getting to it. And I didn't get a huge breath of air and I hit the water and I went way deeper than I thought I would because I had an extra 12 pounds on me. And I started clawing up to the surface and I wasn't getting there fast enough. Uh -huh. It was a fight to get to the surface. And then we had a swim across a, a decent sized pond that we had to go under the buoys probably eight times. You'd swim, dive under for three or four feet. 
And every time I went under, it was harder and harder to keep myself afloat with 12 extra pounds on me. I can't believe somebody let you jump off of that stupid cliff with that on. I think two out of three people would have drowned in that water bracken. Not getting yourself back to the surface with 12 pounds of extra weight and shoes on. I don't, I don't know how you survived. Well, I was lucky and I was in really good shape. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that helped. And this was Tough Mudder 2012. There might not have been a worker there yet. I might have got to the obstacle before them. It it was it was a mess and it was a really dumb thing to do. So I, I was dumb because I injured myself and I was dumb because, yeah, 10 miles into an 11 mile race, gasping, trying to swim across a pond and submerging every you know 10 meters. That's not a good way to survive with added weight on your back. Well, and I would like to add that like if you carry extra body fat and you're 12% you're 12 pounds heavier. Your fat is buoyant. This is tying a boat anchor to your chest. Yeah, these were lightweights. Water. Right. This isn't buoyant fat if somebody carries more weight. This is lead weight. I just can't believe you did that. And I worked so hard in that water. Did you start with the first wave in the morning? Yeah. And did you win that race? Yeah. I started the last person in the first wave. I wanted to chase. And you finished as the first person? Yeah, but again, 2012 Tough Mudder. I don't care. That's still pretty badass. So. Yeah, well, that's, and, my, that's my weight fest story. <laughs> such a dumb thing to do. But the lesson learned, uh, first of all, if you're going to be using your weighted vest, you should be starting on incline work, probably power hiking. But incline work- starting with a low percentage of your body weight. Correct. But always lo- incline work for lower impact, but still that great stress on the, on the muscles. Um, and then, yeah, much smaller increments, not going out for like an hour and a half effort as well. Yeah, and avoiding water on day one. I would say that would be, yeah. In, uh, did you, was this your first day wearing the vest, by the way, as well? Yes. Yeah, in I bought it the night before. Yeah, you you had that one coming to you. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk back about inconsistency, because these both, I guess both of our dumb stories led to inconsistency in training, but it was all because of our knuckleheadedness. So let's talk about any other inconsistency that we want to cover there, like the 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 starting and stopping training method based on seasons or what's coming up. Um, you, we both stand in the same in the same crowd on that. And that's just like, don't do that. Yeah. And the, and the problem with, you can race yourself into shape and you hear that all the time in, in high school and in college, this guy's racing himself into shape. That's great. You can still reach a decent peak, but there's nothing underneath you. There is no base fitness to fall back on. And so you get your three to five weeks of good racing and suddenly you're just kind of out of luck. You, you have no choice, but hopefully not get injured. But uh, like best case scenarios, you just, trail off and you get worse each week until you finally recover and build up your base. You know, it's so true. And then we can move on from this, but your peak is much shorter and it's probably like 85% of your potential than if you were training consistently and then you can hold a peak longer. Uh, Coming off of my stress fracture, just going back to that season, the ankle weight season, um, I did race myself into shape and I'll just outline it. I ran my first race was 1745, 5K. It was my third run back, 1745. Then I ran 1713. Then I ran 1656. Then I ran 1631, 1631, 1631. And every subsequent 1631 felt worse and worse and worse. And by the end of it, there was nowhere to go but down. And I I hit my ceiling quick. And when I hit it, it was a firm ceiling. Mm -hmm. And and, and I never, and I thought I was a sub 16 minute 5K and I was ready to, to go run with the big boys. And because I, I raced myself into shape, I never even saw what my real potential was. And yeah. that's, that's the problem. I got in shape. I felt good. I was improving quickly. You're always going to see that when you come back or rush, like uh, like when a, a race is coming up and you start pounding your training. But then you're going to hit that like concrete wall and it's yeah. going to stop in its tracks. So That's exactly I, it. Normal training progression, you move up, plateau a little bit, move up, plateau a little bit, move up with this. You rock it up, plateau, and then you start going down the other side of the hill, and there's no stopping it. Yep, that's it. I couldn't win. And then you almost have to reset and then restart a new build. Yep. Consistency yep. is king. I learned that as a high schooler. That first year I trained in the winter, I went from a 452 miler to a 426 miler in one year. That's astounding. Now I grew a little bit, but I just put together three months of training uninterrupted. And now I was able to absorb all my workouts and get better rather than fight every workout, drag myself to the next one and be burnt out by February. You were laying that coat of paint down and letting it dry. It was drying. It was drying. Inconsistency leads to injury oftentimes or overdoing your training. My second biggest issue I have (laughs) um, is rushing back on my recoveries. 
because I was not significantly injured for the first 17, 18, 18 years of my running career, year 19 hit me like a ton of bricks and I did not know how to respond to it. Trying to slap a bandaid on and get back to avoid losing fitness, that short-term goal of, man, if I could just get to the next race fit, those three weeks rushed back, long-term looking back cost me three years of mm-hmm. shoddy performances. And that's that's what people need to avoid is rushing back because you always pay, right? Pay now or pay later. You mm. must pay now. It's so true. Yeah. And and I tell this to my athletes all the time and I remind myself of this all the time. And you always want to pay now because you never want to pay later. And paying now could mean, oh, like my, my knee's bugging me a little bit today. You know what? I'm going to take three days off now and cross train instead of, oh, I know I could run on it tomorrow and piss it off more. Because that you could take three days off now, but it could turn into three months later if you push through. And like truer words haven't been couldn't be spoken. And I think a lot of people fall into that camp often. That's how we still end up in the boats we're in most of the time with injury. So it's a good point to make. Yeah, and, and there's not much more I need to say about this one because it's a self-evident <clears throat> one, but you must take it seriously, or it's gonna seriously take you out. It just yeah. it just doesn't mess around. Your body doesn't fix itself. If you continue to hurt it, it's true. It fixes itself. If you get out of your own way. Yeah. Speaking of recoveries, uh, I have my, my MRI on my foot tomorrow, Bracken. Okay. Eight weeks to the day folks, since I've run a step and my foot does not feel any better today than it did six weeks ago. So I'm going in for, yeah, I hate to say it, man. I mean, I jogged across the gym yesterday cause I was running to get to a client. I was running behind and, uh, even running 20 yards in the, I mean, it's a sharp, pain in my foot. So anyways, MRI tomorrow. So stay tuned on what the heck's going on with my foot, but I'm not rushing this recovery. I'll tell you that much. You can be booted up. Oh, I'm afraid I'm going to be booted up, which is going to just drive me nuts. But one other thing I wanted to talk to about rushing recoveries is um, the simple way to combat this is you want to get back and you feel usually if you're coming off an injury, then you feel desperate to get in shape for something coming up that you planned on being in better shape for. And I get I get the need to rush the recovery because, or the the pr- training progression because of the pressure of time. However, I can speak knowledgeably about this in the sense that like volume comes in other ways. And most adaptation, like the neuromuscular adaptation of the run motion and feeling fluid and getting used to running fast and hard can be made with very little time on feet and then supplemented with non-impact volume. So when you're coming back from an injury and not rushing your recovery, like the best thing you can do is, hey, I would like to run four miles today, but maybe I'm going to do 20 minutes on the assault bike and then go run two miles and build your volume that way. And you'll be surprised. Your fitness isn't going to slow down its progression once you start running. It's going to progress just as if you were running full mileage, but with way less impact. And so I encourage most people, instead of just being like, oh, I'm just going to run now that I'm coming back and I can run again. One, you could probably get in better shape by infiltrating both at the same time. And two, then you're just not putting as much time on your feet. So like that, like hybrid method, once you do start running again, I know you're sick of cross training. It's the last thing you want to keep doing because you've been doing it through injury, but it's the way to go. And that's going to be my plan when I start running again, eventually who the hell knows when. So I just wanted to make that point clear that like you can still get back to high volume work um, and then slowly infuse your running. And that way you're going to be much better off for it. And Hunter McIntyre is the perfect example of this. He does not run seriously year round. He trains seriously year round. He keeps a ridiculously high level of engine work all year round. And when he has an event in sight, he sharpens up his running skill. Yep. And he always arrives ready to rock. Now, again, Hunter's a freak of nature. But the premise holds true. We might not be able to take as much time away from running as him, but if we keep our engine going, we're going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's a good example of that. And he's always running like 70% of his cardio fitness in some capacity. He's just getting yep. in other ways, yeah. Um, should we move on to the third thing? Yeah, so my next thing is, is it has to do with inconsistency, but bouncing around training plans or training styles. It is really seductive sometimes to see something else out there or hear about something or read it or look back at your training log and be like, man, you know what I need more of is this. And instead of infiltrating your plan with pieces of that, you scrap your plan and you go to your next one. And if that one doesn't work, then you try a new style and you read this book and you bounce over here and back and forth. And it's kind of like consistently throwing different color paint at your wall. 
it doesn't work out to be a really pretty wall. It looks like a mess. Mm -hmm. It's so true. And then the hard part about that is you don't know what has done what and what result has been provided by what training method. And that's a frustrating thing. It's like, like a smart man, let's say you were, say you're having food intolerances, uh, which is somewhat common, and you don't know what's causing it. You don't just keep all of those, all the foods you're eating in your diet and guessing like which one's upsetting you. You start by like either eliminating one at a time or starting with one and then adding in one at a time. So you have an idea of what the outcome of what you're doing is. And like training kind of works the same way. You, you need to know what yields what. So the big thing is like whatever process it is, follow it. Follow mm -hmm. your process and be consistent with it and give it a real chance. A lot of times all these different training methods work if they're followed consistent. And yep. we're kind of culprits of maybe even causing that by throwing out our flashy workouts and our compromise. Or you should try compromise running or you should do this. It's part of our process. But if you're throwing it haphazardly into another training method, then who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. That That's it's so true, but it's tough to avoid. I, I just had a guy uh, yesterday, he booked a coaching consult and we chatted for an hour, but he wasn't looking for my coaching. He was looking to become the best self-coach athlete he could. And he wanted to bounce ideas off me. Mm -hmm. And he said, I had this plan and I'm working on it. My fall race was canceled. I'm not loving a lot of pieces of this plan, but I'm, I know I'm getting a little better because of it. Do I reset now with something else or do I see it through? And my response was, you see this through, because even if it isn't your perfect plan, you'll get to the end and you'll know why. Yep. You'll feel everything that that plan gave you. Keep testing your time trials along the way and at the end of it. And now you've got it. And especially if you ever plan on talking to anyone else about training, if you're self-coach and you want to help other people self-coach or coach anyone else in the future, you got to know what doesn't work as much as what works. And if you stop halfway through to find the next thing, you never truly know what would have happened with six more weeks on that program because we've all been in doldrums and you're thinking, man, I'm just plateaued. I'm stagnant. I'm fatigued. And three weeks later, you pop a crazy race. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the opposite happens. You're feeling like a rock star and you just can't perform in races off that training. And that's why it's important to see your plan through, progress it through the end of its progression, as long as you're not doing something dumb that should be stopped immediately. But bouncing stimulus to stimulus just never tells you the facts about your training. And if you don't know what you've done, you can't possibly build out your next best version. Yeah. The truer words have not been spoken, Bracken. And we're kind of in this, I don't know, this weird time where social media is very influential. Mm -hmm. And all we see is everybody's like highlight reels. And we see these flashy workouts. I'm a product of that. You're not so much. You're a little slower on the social media front. But like, but you see this next like tasty thing you want to try. And suddenly you're bouncing around haphazardly trying, oh, Hunter McIntyre did this crazy row run wad I want to do. But then Ryan Atkins went out and ran 20 miles in the mountains. But John Albin's out doing 60 mile bike rides. And suddenly you have this melting pot of training styles and philosophies, but you don't really have any rhyme or reason to it. And I think a lot of us fall into that camp that that aren't coached in the sense that like, I don't want to have to think about what I'm doing today. And I saw Alyssa Hawley did this crazy assault bike workout. I'm going to try that. And the problem is um, just what you had mentioned. Yeah, you, Your process, well, there is no process. And then mm -hmm. you don't understand the result. Anybody who does an experiment that that they can have a tangible result at the end also has a tangible process. And so like, I know it's easy to do. And right now is a good time to just experiment. I get it. But yeah, following a process through is important, not getting sucked into these like flashy ideas along the way. The one thing I wanted to ask you that just kind of, um, I, I got curious about was, um, how long do you see a program through? But when, is there an official end date on a lot of programs or philosophies? If it's periodized, yes. If it's if it's one of those constantly ready to race programs, then I still don't think I would give anything less than 12 weeks. I don't think you can truly know if you haven't gone through 10 to 12 weeks of training. It's hard to move the gauge on your fitness, you know, move that needle significantly one way or the other in four to six weeks, unless you're really untrained coming in. So yeah, I, I'd like to get a full 12 weeks and really know. You know, the example of that for me is when I first got into the sport and I hired you. Um, I remember I had to apply to coach with you. Uh, they said you had very limited spots, Bracken. This is what I was told. 
and that they got to make sure that you're good enough to be coached by Bracken. That's what I was told by like Mike Ferguson and Garrett Toll back in the day. So I had to submit my 5K PR and all this to make sure I was worthy. Now I feel like it was a gimmick bracket. I'm selling me. What do you say about that? I think at the time, I was really just interested in working with the top level guys in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. I wanted to build up this Midwest powerhouse. And yeah. it wasn't a shot at the lower level or mid-tier guys, but I wanted, I wanted to start matching the East and West Coast with some killers of our own. Yeah, I can appreciate that. But when I started working with you, I got assigned compromise run workouts almost every week. And what I remember is this, and you probably won't remember this, but um, I was sore as hell to the point where it ruined the whole rest week of my running. The whole rest of the week. I you got really that. sore from that stuff early on. Oh, really sore, which is wild because I was in my gym bro days and I was still like hitting weights, but I was not doing it together. I got real sore. Yes. Sort of the point where like, it's one of those, like I dreaded, you know, getting out and into my car. I didn't want to go to the bathroom. Like, that it's like kind of dog stuff. loop got you, right? Uh, my lower back, I had issues with at the time, yeah. but no, I'm talking like glutes and quads, but anyways, ruined the rest next week of my training, not ruined, but I was adapting. Okay. We'll call it was part of my process. You sent me another one the next Tuesday. I think I did them like four, three, four weeks. In a row. Anyways, I was still tired that, that second OCR work. And I was like, man, like, geez, but I wasn't as sore, but it's still like kind of ruined my running again the rest of the week. Third week, same thing. Fourth week, I happened to have a 10 mile trail race I wanted to run. And and at this point, I almost would have ditched compromise running if I didn't know that there was some proven method behind it because it had just like impacted my following days so much that it was frustrating. Because as a pure runner, you never deal with that sort of soreness. Right. Anyways, the point I'm getting to is I trusted the process. And then I went to this 10 mile trail race, did a little three day taper into it. And it was the best I had ever felt in a trail race or any race in a decade. I ran out, nothing could hit me. The hills, there were trees over the trail. I was jumping things, like nothing broke my stride. And in that moment, I know it's only a week, I'm giving you a snapshot of four weeks. I crushed that field. I never felt more bulletproof in my life. And I didn't just get discouraged from that compromise run process. I stuck with it for a month. And suddenly this undulating trail didn't seem so undulating. The little roots and ruts, I dropped these fools. And that was it for me. And ever since I've been like, yep, this consistently is in. And I know I would not have felt that well on that trail race if it wasn't for the compromise work. And I stuck to that process, even though it was a hit at first. So that was like a really good testament in my own right to something very specific. But um, I would not have known that would have been the result if I just gave up on it right away. That's exactly it. And and every pathway we practice, we get more efficient at. But when we start bouncing plans, it becomes easier to drop the next plan and move on and drop the next plan. And when you stick to a plan, it becomes easier to stick to the next thing you do. And so that's why it's important if you're in a bad habit to break it immediately, because mm -hmm. otherwise that sets the tone for the rest of your career. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So number four for me, yeah. number four for me plays off this, which is comparing myself to others both in choosing the style of training and workouts I do, um, expecting things that maybe they have done in, in terms of results or performances, and even dictating the things I use in training or tactics and strategies. Do you have any specific examples where that bit you in the ass? Oh, for sure. So Hobie Call early on uh, did all of his racing in the Nike um, Zoom Waffle XC. It was a rubber bottom cross-country spike with no yep. spikes in it. And I owned a pair because I had run cross country and I used them for all my races and they were great for sprints. But then I started wearing the X-Talon 190s for beasts and I felt great wearing beasts and ultra, wearing those for beasts and ultras. But at the end of a year, I was really beat up. This is when coming off that SI issue, I hadn't been able to train much and I had a beast coming up, a 13 mile race down in Texas. And I thought, I just need every advantage I can to be faster. And mm -hmm. so I brought out the suit and these were really light, like 5.3 ounce rubber bottom spikes. I, I had a pair. Yeah. Okay. They're great. Mm -hmm. And I warmed for the beast and I felt really light and fast for three or four miles. And by mile seven, my legs were getting trashed and the last five miles were so miserable and I ran awful. Any second or two I gained by feeling fast in the first couple of miles, I gave away minutes at the end because I was heel striking in spikes and I, my form was slumping. But because Hobie is so light and efficient, I looked at him and thought, oh man, look how good he looks and performs in those. I need those too. And I can't even tell you how many people the next year I saw in our sport in Nike waffles. 
<laughs> everyone saw what Hobie wore and they wore them and there'd be 220 pound guys wearing Nike waffles to go out for a beast. And I'm thinking I've been there, man, this is going to suck. Mm -hmm. Less is not more when it comes to OCR trail racing shoes. In fact, mm -hmm. I almost think more is more because the worst case scenario is what you landed in and that overall fatigue and lack of support just crushed you. It's that same thing. You ever see guys like bikers now that we're biking a little bit, they'll invest in like a carbon water bottle holder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a quarter of an ounce lighter than a plastic water bottle holder. But then they put 16 ounces of water in it anyways. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are, you, what are you doing? It's the same thing. Like that is not going to change anything. Um, except in a shoe, it can only detriment you. And so I think more is more. I've been under that philosophy. Your fitness will show through no matter what. Yeah. Over time, the longer the race, the more your stride has the ability to break down and falter. And mm -hmm. the right shoe is the one that allows you to be at your most efficient every step of the race. The shoe I wear for a one mile race is not the shoe I wear for a 5k race, which is not the shoe I'd wear for a marathon because right. there are different demands on my stride. I can run on my toes for a mile. I can midfoot strike for a 5k. I'm going to not quite heel strike, but it's going to be back of midfoot strike for a marathon. And I can't back of midfoot strike in really, really, really hyper flexible, fast, light racing flats. I need something with some foam underneath me. And OCR is the same way. If we're running a beast at Killington, you can wear a pretty minimalistic shoe because it's so soft. If you're running a beast in Tahoe, you might need a little bit more shoe so you don't just get destroyed by those descents. Mm -hmm. So that was one of your classic examples of yeah. just doing something somebody else had done yep. without testing it yourself first. Yep. Another one was uh, expecting to be able to do things that other people did. I'd see John Albin and Ryan Atkins recover like crazy after huge epic events and smash me again the next week. Ryan Atkins beat me in a sprint, 59 minute sprint in Montana, seven days after winning a 50 mile race. Like That's insane. So I ran Killington two weeks before Tahoe. Kempson was going to do it. Rhea was going to do it. Hey, they're all doing it. Other people turn around in seven days. 14 is plenty. My first downhill in Tahoe felt like the final descent had felt in Killington. My legs were not recovered. And I did not, I think I took 18th, 20th in Tahoe and I was expecting eighth or 10th. Mm -hmm. It was a mess. I would carry an obstacle up into like 13th, 12th, 11th. I get to the bottom of the downhill in 18th. Get through the, the ape hanger, tire flip, back up to 13th, top of the next climb in 10th, down to 20th by the finish. It just, I yo-yoed back because I could not run downhill because I was smoked. I was commentating down there that year and I was on course watching. And I remember after the first big descent down into the festival area, uh, you had gone by and you were laughing saying my legs aren't working like my body and like you're mid you're an hour and 20 deep into this race maybe more yeah. and it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a cardiovascular problem you were having no you you looked at me and did this like hands in the air thing well i'm screwed today yeah. but it wasn't like you were gasping for air and that just it's just it, it's a testament to your story saying that you had not recovered from the damage that killington had done to your body in two weeks and you thought you could because other guys seemed to be able to do it. So you assumed you could as well, and you were dead wrong. Now, you also came off of Killington, which is a, has some brutal descents. Um, and this leads us into a good conversation about recovery. Uh, you do see guys racing back-to-back -back weekends or doing these epic days. One, they've either earned that through training and they practice those stimulus. But two, and I fall into this camp, is a lot of people think a week or two is enough to, to recover from a long effort with descents. I would argue it takes three full weeks to like cellularly repair, repair those attachments, like those joints, the tendons and ligaments that insert into your knees, your hips, uh, all those things like those do not recover overnight or in a week or in maybe two weeks. And so if you have big beast or mountain races, like three weeks apart at minimum, I think is what it takes your body to recover and be ready again. And you fell a week short. I so did. And you know what? I should have looked around and been intelligent. I know my body. I'm a slow recoverer. I know that John Albin and Ryan Atkins can recover very well, and they put in massive amounts of vert each week. Mm -hmm. I live in farmland, or at the time I lived in farmland. All my vert came on a treadmill or at the local ski hill where I could gain 188 feet and my steepest, longest run. 
Of course, 5,000 plus feet of descent in Killington is going to affect me more than it would affect Atkins or Elvin because 5,000 feet is a is just a Tuesday to them. And you know who else suffered the exact same thing as you? Ryan Kempson. Ryan Kempson Ryan, fell apart. Ryan Kempson. He might have even raced both days in Killington. I don't remember that two weekends before. And Ryan Kempson was in fantastic shape that year. Fantastic shape. And he went bomb, took like 40th or 50th, didn't he? 30, 40, 50th at, at Tahoe. He had the same thing. First descent, he crumbled, and he is a descender. He's a he's he's arguably the closest to Johnny Luna Lima, even closer to Ryan Atkins that, that we have as a descender. You look at splits from races yeah. last year, Kempson can descend. And it was the descents because of Killington two weeks earlier that smashed him. He beat me by nine minutes in Killington two weeks earlier, and I beat him by maybe double that in Tahoe. And I was crumbling. I didn't do anything right. I just was less smashed than he was. And that was it. So yeah, we both paid for it because we thought we could do what someone else had done. I think, well, and I think there's a couple lessons learned there. One, yes. If you think you can do what somebody else can do, try it first on your own in a simulation in training. You didn't have that luxury of time. I guess you rolled the dice. And then two, I think that the recovery from long mountain efforts, especially descents, just takes longer than the average person thinks. And so um, those are two really good lessons learned, and those are tough ones for you. And that brings us pretty seamlessly to my second to last thing, which is I've been in trouble anytime I've not tested things out in training before using it in race day. I don't care if that's shoes, gear, recovery, strategy, like can I do a big three-hour mountain effort two weeks prior to a world championship. Anytime I don't test it and prove it to myself first, it blows up in my face. Can you imagine if you uh, tried your little hack job perform elite uh, formula on the morning of race day? I wouldn't have made it to the start line. Case in point right there. Now, we talked about this yesterday, and you shared your story about your clothing. I do want you to share that. But prior to that, I want to tell you that I purchased that jacket last night. You did purchase it? Yeah, I went on and I looked. What color did you go with? I went with uh, industrial green. You know, the industrial, that's my least favorite color. Like the forest green? Yeah. I don't like that color. Lisa loves green on me. She said it brings out my eyes. Again, I'm trying to keep my wife happy. But I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. It's $99 everywhere. I got it for $45. Where'd you find that? So this is the the Patagonia Houdini jacket. Patagonia Houdini. Where did you find it for $49? Uh, $45. And it was some some web shop. I'm not entirely sure. I could could pull it up, but I, I don't know. Do they have all the colors? Nope. They had one color and they had a uh, smaller medium. So I hope I fit in a medium. You will fit in a medium. Medium will fit you. Yeah. Good. All right. Good man. All right. So talking about um, what was the what was the intro to this one, Brack, and what, what topic were we not, on? Not testing it out in practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, I learned this lesson the very hard way. Uh, last year, 2019 in Seattle, um, which arguably probably one of the worst feeling races I'd ever had. And you hear this a lot if you race OCR. You hear that, oh, if it's raining and cold, that less clothing is more because all that clothing is going to do is it's going to soak up water if it's cold and rainy and you're just going to be stuck frozen in your cold, wet clothes. So the theory is that you don't wear much, like you wear a pair of shorts and no shirt or the ladies will wear just shorts and a sports bra and you go. Well, I'd never done this in training before. And Seattle happened to be 40 degrees and raining. And they were putting us in the Snohomish River, which was 45 degrees of mountain runoff water. And it was a miserable suck fest. Anybody that ran that race in April of 2019 knows how miserable it was. I show up to the start line with no shirt, just my shorts, thinking this was the smart thing to do. Now, I run a little cold. I get cold easily. I don't know why. However, um, by the end of that race, I wasn't sure if I was going to finish. I was actually concerned for my health and the fact that like my body was stopping its functioning. I did make it to the finish. It was a terrible race. I felt the monkey bars. My hand and body was numb. It was miserable. I should have known better in the sense that I'd never done that before. So why would I do that in a race? But I had run cold before with like a shell of a jacket on something to keep my body heat in, even in wet conditions. And I didn't. And it cost me that race hands down. It was not, my body was not prepared for those elements. In fact, Bracken, I went out and experimented that winter, uh, this last winter, to make sure getting my gear dialed in. I went outside and I ran a pair of shorts. It was like 25 degrees. It wasn't wet now. Um, And all I wore was my Patagonia Houdini jacket. 
and a pair of shorts. And in 25 degrees, I was a I was a thermos in there. I was sweating. I was more warm than I possibly ever needed to be. And I ended up using that philosophy in Tahoe later in the year. And I kept my Patagonia Houdini jacket on the whole time in the swim, in and out, everything. And I was ready to rock, baby. My body stayed warm. And and it just goes to show that like I I earned that poor performance because I didn't experiment with this. And yeah, some would say going out and running shirtless in 40 degrees as an experiment sucks and they would avoid it. And and I did. And and it cost me that race. And that's another case of like not doing what the other people are doing because I did what I thought I should do and it and it ruined my race. And now I know that like for me, I need a shell on. I need to create a an oven inside my upper body to keep my core body temp up. And that was one example of that right there where um that bit me in the ass bad. Never again. Should have done it in, in training. And so that's my one example. Hard lesson learned. It's a good one. And and you watch Ryan Atkins again, to use him as an example. He never wears a shirt. That <clears throat> race, he wore a shirt, but it was just a shirt. He didn't have a shell. And he doesn't struggle with that. Ryan Kent has never complained about the cold in his life. He always says he's fine. It doesn't matter. He runs with a Mudgear shirt on in Seattle mm-hmm. and in Tahoe and doesn't have an issue. So it clearly changes person to person. And it's about finding that. I think the best way to stay warm is to have a lightweight shell that will, that will dry out quickly and just enough to trap some heat. I think that's the way to run the warmest, but that's just my own personal experience. Now, if you have a a shirt on that like holds water really well, like actually soaks up water, that's a different story, but um, I'm glad you bought that Patagonia Houdini. I would highly recommend it to anybody. I'm excited for it. I have a craft sleeveless one that I wore for the ultra and it was awesome. I just kept my core warm. And it was pretty meshy in the back, let the back air out, but kept my front warm against those Tahoe whipping winds on the ridges. And it was beautiful. Tell you what, one of the worst gear mistakes I ever made other than wearing those cross-country spikes, I had a different pair. I got a a pair of Asics, the Asics Cross Freak. Really good um, grip for a cross-country rubber bottom spike and a little bit more cushion than the Nike waffles. So they're a really good super sprint cross uh, Shoot, shoot aware in OCR or trail racing if there wasn't going to be crazy amounts of mud. And I tested them out. I did an OCR workout in them. I did a hill workout in them and I did a tempo in them. And I realized I can run fast. I can run moderate. I can run up and down and I don't get any rubbing or chafing or anything weird. Ran the Indiana sprint and maybe 20 or 30 meters in, we did that thing where they have trenches dug and you got to jump in, climb out. I came out the other side in both shoelaces untied. Oh, God. So I stopped and retied them. And maybe 800 meters later, we crossed a little stream and both shoelaces untied again. And so I stopped. I just cranked them down and tied knots in both sides. And then the laces were just out flapping. And I ran the rest of the race like that. Luckily, it was a small regional race. And I was able to catch back up. But it took me something like four or five miles to catch back up in a five and a half mile race. I caught the eventual second place guy with maybe 400 meters to go. It almost cost me a race and several hundred dollars because I didn't test my shoes out in water. I yeah. knew there's going to be mud and water on course. And I failed to think, hey, these are kind of thick laces. I wonder if they're going to compress a little bit when they get wet. And sure enough, they did, but I didn't test that. And it nearly cost me 500 bucks. Man, I think gear testing and the actual elements you're going to race in is like one of the most important things you can do. It's so easy to assume like, oh, I've worn these shoes. I've worn these shoes in dry conditions or I've worn this hydration vest before, like on in dry conditions or whatever it is. And then you go and race and it's just completely different, different experience. Um, another thing I would say, one other lesson that I've learned and maybe, um, I don't know how you'll feel about about this, but uh, when I first got into the sport, I constantly fueled with um, about 100 calories every 45 minutes, and I noticed myself bonking pretty hard later in races, uh, and I just did 45 minutes because I had read some stuff, and some other guys said they take nutrition every 45 minutes, and that just seemed to make sense to me, and, and it cost me the last like 30 minutes of races a few times. Um, I found, for me, that 100 calories every 30 minutes staves off any sort of bonking gets ahead of the curve for me and and I had not done a lot of nutrition work before OCR because I wasn't racing or running that long and anyways um and so I didn't experiment with that before before the races and it cost me again towards the end so 
Uh, then once I started going on my long training runs, I said, Hey, that's just, let's just play around with this and fueling every 30 minutes for me last, uh, just does a way better job of keeping me sustained throughout. And no, I'm not hungry at 30 minutes. No, I don't feel like I need fuel every 30 minutes. Like you don't even want it in a race, but the key is setting yourself up for the future. So that's like, that's like one that, that sticks out to me as well. It's just simple things like that. Yeah. Once you tip over, you can't get that back very well in a two or three hour race. You have to be ahead of that crash. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Should we move on to the sixth and final thing? Yeah, my final thing is being a mileage hog, being a slave to my logbook. We preach the importance of a logbook, but it can become really, really controlling. Mm -hmm. Numbers are addicting. And if I saw 70 miles the previous week, you know I'm hitting 70 again if 70 is what's scripted, no matter what my body is telling me. And what I found is that maybe I'd be so overwhelmed on Wednesday or Thursday, I'd have to cut a 10 down to a 5. And then I was making it up on the Sunday when I was supposed to be recovering on that Sunday. And 70 mile weeks, 80, 90, they're not all made equal. You can do 70 miles with three quality workouts or you can do 70 miles with one quality workout. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a whole lot easier and less impactful for you to do it on one workout. But there were times in my life that I prioritized hitting my number rather than hitting my quality. And that became an issue for me, both in health of my legs and in progress for my fitness. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. And I would argue when you said like 70 or 80 or 90 miles is not all created equal. I'm a firm believer that we should simply, especially in this sport, or if you're a trail runner, go by time on feet. Uh, so total time measuring your volume versus mileage, because when you start adding vert, you start adding trail running, you start adding compromised run work, or you're doing some carry repeats, it doesn't show like a lot of mileage on paper and that people can get caught up in that, but all volume is not created equal. And our sport is the epitome of that. So I encourage you to track your total hours per week or total minutes versus total mileage. Um, because I mean, a, a 30 mile week with 10,000 feet of vert is the same thing as running like a 50 mile week on the flats. And they're so vastly different, but on paper you say, I only ran 30 miles this week. I suck. I need to cram more in when your body's already beat up because of all that time on feet. So it's a really good point to make. I'm really glad you said that time versus mileage is important for anyone other than a track athlete. Yep. Maybe a road runner as well, because it's consistent. You're running the same terrain. Always you can track that. But if you need to hit a 70 mile week and you're at 58, you're going to run 12. And your only options are get it done fast and limit your time on feet, which is stressful, or get it done slow and now you're adding time on feet. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're trying to hit 15 hours of training that week, you might be two hours shy with a day to go. You can go out and plod for two hours. You might only get 10 miles on the on a trail, or you can add an hour and a half of biking. You've still hit your hours for the week, but you've reduced stress. So in terms of long-term health and development, you are absolutely right. Time on feet is the absolute way to go for anyone other than road and track racers. Yeah. And the volume debate, like you need to run more to be faster and more and more and more and more and all these tie together, getting caught up with seeing what other people are doing on Strava or, or on Instagram, uh, being a mileage hog, I would argue qual quality over quantity at any day. And that's a slippery slope and getting in mileage for the sake of getting in mileage has only cost me injury over anything else. And I look back on like the highest mileage in quotes weeks that I've run. And I don't, my fitness wasn't really any better then than it was when I was doing, when I was going off a of time on feet and doing purposeful work on a regular basis and more quality stuff. So like, I don't know, I think the mileage debate is, will be eternal. It's always going to happen, but um, I, I just don't think more is more there. And, and I agree. Don't look at what we're doing or don't look at what uh, other guys in the sport are doing stay in your own lane, as I like to say, and worry about yourself and your own general progression. There's no rush here. There's no rush right now, certainly. So, so small incremental increases and, and don't try to mimic the pros. Just don't. That's exactly it. So that brings me to the end of my list. I'm going to surprise you with one. What is okay. the single dumbest thing you've ever done during a race? The single dumbest thing I've ever done during a race. Yeah, your biggest racing mistake you've made. Well, I mean, I've gone off. I went off course once, uh, which is really dumb because it was in Palmerton and I went down a double yeah, that, that wasn't a choice. It was the dumbest race choice mistake you've made. Dumbest race choice. Put me on the spot. OCR specific? Yeah, might as well. And then, I mean, you can share running if you want. The dumbest race choice I have made. Whew, you're going to have to give me a second on this one, Bracken. I think you're itching to tell me one, though. 
No, I don't even have one in mind. I was just thinking one little anecdotal story that ended off, but I guess well, the- I, mean, I missed, I missed it. it completely skipped the Atlas stone carrying a race and got DQ'd, but that wasn't a conscious choice. No, I, I wish I had something for you. I don't, I'm going to think on it for, give me two more seconds as you babble. All right. I'd say the dumbest thing I've done consistently over my Spartan and obstacle racing career is assuming the best case condition for a course rather than the worst. When yeah. ops, when Spartan would say it's an eight to 10 plus mile super, I'd be like, all right, eight mile race. I'm racing this and I'm going to ha- carry just enough water and fuel for eight. And then it would be 11 and a half miles and I'd be crashing like crazy the last three or in Dubai when they, it's 20 plus K super. I mean, beast, it's going to be 95 degrees. I didn't carry water. I carried a gel, uh, two gels because I thought 20 K I'm going to be done. And I think it's a two hour race. Well, it turned into 31K and three hours and 17 minutes. Um, Assuming the best rather than planning for the worst has gotten me into trouble more than anything else in a race. Uh, I think I have one, and this was something goes back to don't do anything during a race that you haven't tested in training or practice. The Chicago race in 2018 was a mud fest. We had mud up to our knees in a lot of points. And everybody was worried about the tire flip, saying, no way that thing's going to get flipped. And I went to Walmart the night before a race and bought myself a pair of rubber gloves with sand sprayed into them so they were grippy, and then a coat of rubber over the sand, thinking, I I shoved those rubber gloves in my pants. Now you can't do that. But I shoved those rubber gloves in my pants. I ran the whole damn race with them. They were annoying. You can do that. No. Yeah. That'd be assistance. No, no, gloves, if you carry it the whole time, gloves are le- are allowed. Okay, well then, uh, well anyways, this didn't work out in my favor. So I had these annoying big-ass gloves shoved into my damn pants, and I came to the tire thinking, this is where I'm going to podium my first U.S. National Series race. And I took the 20 seconds to take these stupid things out and put them on, and my hands were muddy underneath, and putting on a glove in those situations with your heart rate at 190 was a mess. And I got to that tire, and I went to try to flip it with these rubber gloves, and it was like oil on oil. It was like rubber and rubber was the perfectly wrong choice. I had never tested that ever. And I set myself up to fail before I even had a damn chance. I didn't try this anywhere. I just assumed that these were gloves that were meant to grip things and it was going to work. And VJ Jones pulls out a stupid hotel towel that he stole from his hotel room. And the cloth stuck to the towel better or stuck to the uh, tire. And he flipped the damn tire with a hotel cloth. And I know this is all semantics and we shouldn't be doing any of this. And I will never carry, you know, try anything like that again. But that cost me my first U.S. Series race podium. I may have been better off with my fingers, maybe getting that thing over. And I didn't try it out beforehand. I felt like an idiot. And in fact, yeah, and I came into that with Cody Moat and I pissed around with my gloves long enough where he didn't. And it just was a disaster. It was a very frustrating end to a great race for me. How's that? Uh, That's sad. That's that's, that's sad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, everybody, you know, burpee that tire, but VJ Jones, eh? so whatever. Lean body sorcery. Well, That's folks, it. that brings us to the end here. We want to hear your stories. What are the mistakes you've made in training? We have a Q&A coming up that we are going to um, talk about your questions, and we'll probably share some of your stories because if you've done it wrong, someone else is going to as well, and maybe we can prevent that from happening. So give yeah. us your failures. and Let's celebrate them. I think we should. We'll put out a little bit of a poll or prompt you guys to give us some of your funny race uh, fails. Maybe we'll share some on our future episode again, as long as with a, uh, uh, a listener submitted Q&A. So roll them in. See ya.